There's a wonderful uh, final line there in that song. And it's a reminder that our hope is in the coming of our Savior. It'll be a glorious day when that takes place. But before our Savior returns, we find ourselves in this world. And at times, it's a very dark world. Join me in John chapter 15, where Jesus speaks to that very issue of life in this world now that he has ascended to the right hand of his Father. John chapter 15, and we are picking up in verse 18, where we left off last time, 18, as Jesus continues with his apostles to make his way to the Garden of Gethsemane, or just hours before his betrayal and his death. And as we have begun to see last week, this is no silent walk. Jesus knows what is about to befall him. He knows what is in store for his apostles, and so Jesus uses these final few hours to prepare his men, not only for the horror that he will face, but he prepares these men for the hate they will receive after he is taken from them. He's preparing them for the anger they will experience in the weeks and years ahead And the martyrdom, every one of them, except John, the martyrdom, every one of them will face when their life comes to an end. Read the text with me. We're starting in verse 18. We'll read through verse 25. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, But I chose you out of the world because of this the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would would not have sin, but now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in the law, They hated me without a cause. And you can stop there. Future suffering is obviously Jesus' theme in this passage, and preparation is the purpose. Now understand, this is not the first time Jesus has promised his followers hatred and anger and coming persecution. In fact, we see the first promise of this in Matthew chapter 5. This is Jesus' very first sermon. Here's his candidating sermon. And we don't even get out of the introduction yet when we hear Jesus say this, blessed are those who have been persecuted for righteousness' sake. He looks back now, Old Testament saints, and he summarizes the life of all those in the Old Testament who want to live faithfully, godly, He says, they were persecuted, they suffered, and yet what did they do? They rejoiced 
They're blessed. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But now Jesus makes this personal. Here's personal application now. Verse 11. Blessed are you, are you, when people persecute you because of me. This is his introduction. First sermon on the scene. And Jesus' message is this. If you want to follow me, though it will grant you glorious blessings, kingdom of heaven blessings and promises and joy, understand what it will also cost you. It will be anger and hatred and even, in Jesus' words here, persecution. In Matthew 10, Jesus issued the same kind of warning. He said, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth, though he's the prince of peace. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. That's what the gospel does. It divides, it severs. It reveals man's pride and sinfulness. And thus it is a sword that divides the one who longs for righteousness and justification and forgiveness and divides that person from the one who loves their sin. In fact, the promise of suffering and hatred and persecution was even wrapped up in Jesus' gospel call. There was no bait and switch. Jesus is very upfront about what following him will cost. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. And then this statement, and take up his cross. In the first century, that meant only one thing. It meant that you were willing to carry your own cross beam to your own death. So take up your cross means. And Jesus says it is only when you are willing to do that that you can follow him. And so warnings of hatred have been issued and promises of persecution have been made, but, but up to this point, all of those warnings have been future, unfulfilled promises. But now Jesus says those promises of future warnings, those warnings are about to become a present reality. Things are about to drastically change for these men. Drop down to chapter 16. 16, look at verse four. Here's the conclusion of this preparation. Verse four, these things I did not say to you at the beginning. I did not tell you about imminent danger. Imminent danger. It was always a promise for the future. Why? Because I was with you. As long as Jesus was with these men, they were never the brunt of the world's hatred. Jesus was always the lightning rod that attracted every godless evil bolt. He was always the one who experienced Satan's vicious venom. In fact, look at chapter 17, verse 12. This is Jesus' prayer for them. Notice what he says. While I was with them, verse 12, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name. I was keeping them and I guarded them. Not one of them perished. The world couldn't get to them and kill them. But now in chapter 15, all of that is about to change. 
These apostles are about to lose their shield and their shelter, and they themselves will become ground zero for the world's hatred against Christ, hatred against Christ's gospel. This is the paradigm for all believers who follow. So Jesus here, knowing his own death was imminent, he begins, like I said, to prepare them, prepare them for cruelty and danger, prepare them for ruthless attacks that they will face for the remainder of their lives. And again, as we saw last week, this is preparation we also need not only because Jesus promises this in chapter 15, but again, because of the trajectory of our own country, a country that is rapidly traveling down that Romans 1 spiral, a country whose intolerance in anything gospel is hardening, a culture that calls evil good and good evil, legalizing what God abhors, prohibiting what God calls righteous. It is true, it is true, we have perhaps more than any other country in the world, we have experienced a reprieve from these satanic hatred things that so many believers have faced. But again, it's not if, it's when, when will this reprieve end? And if we are not preparing ourselves now, if we are not preparing ourselves now, if we're not preparing our children for what they might face, then we are overestimating our own spiritual strength to stand firm in the midst of gospel hatred. And we're underestimating the ruthlessness of our enemy, Satan, the God of this world. We're literally playing with fire. Again, look at verse, or chapter 16, verse one. Chapter 16, verse one, notice what Jesus says. These things I have spoken to you, why, why? So that you may be kept from stumbling Stumbling in the sense of renouncing Christ because of the world's anger. It's just too much to bear. Stumbling in the sense of leaving the faith, of choosing security and safety and silence and acceptance and friendship with this world. Choosing that over the promises of glory and heaven and union with Jesus. This is a temptation. We all face it. One theologian put it this way, if we are ill-prepared and try to endure in our own strength, we will do whatever we can to escape pain. This option, option is deadly to our souls, playing with fire. And so we're taking our time to work through Jesus's preparation here learning from him to prepare ourselves so that we remain faithful in a world filled with gospel hatred. We began last week in verses 18 and 19. We first saw the satanic source of gospel hatred, the satanic source of gospel hatred. It's verse 18. If the world, the evil world system ruled by Satan, governed, energized by the God of this world. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. That's what we saw. 
Is that gospel anger against Christ's people is satanic anger against Jesus? It's not primarily about us. But we're the collateral damage in this cosmic war. We developed that at length last time. Because Satan can't get to Jesus. He wants to. But because Satan can't get to Jesus, he sets his sights on those closest to Jesus, his followers. And thus we, in the words of Paul, we do our share in filling up the afflictions of Christ. We do our share in exhausting, exhausting Satan's rage against Jesus. That's our calling. Gospel hatred is satanic rage. And thus, as we saw, it requires divinely powerful weapons to win this war. Weapons that consist of Christ modeling compassion. That's a divinely powerful weapon. Christ modeling compassion. Gospel proclamation. 2 Corinthians 10. Prayer for one another's faithfulness. Ephesians 6. These are the divinely powerful weapons we wield in this cosmic war. Compassion, proclamation, and prayer. Again, we developed that last time. Brings us to verse 20. We'll focus here. Verse 20 this morning. We move from the satanic source of gospel hatred to now the many faces of gospel hatred. The many faces of gospel hatred. The many ways, the schemes, the strategies that Satan uses to pour out his fury in order to silence God's people. Let's look at verse 20. Remember, present tense, always remember this. Keep on remembering. Don't forget this principle. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. And Jesus saying, remember this, he's quoting himself. He's quoting himself. Turn back to chapter 13. This is in the upper room. Jesus has washed his apostles' feet. It's a picture of love and, and mercy and compassion, humility. Chapter 13, verse 15. I gave you an example, Jesus says, that you should do as I did to you. Love one another, care for one another. And why should we follow Jesus' steps here of love and care? Because here it is, principle, truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master. So the principle is simple. Slaves are subordinate to their lords. Slaves follow their master's orders. And if something is not beneath a master to do, then it certainly was not below what a slave should do. So the application here in chapter 13 is this. We need to love one another because Christ loves us. It's very visible and personal. If the king does it, we do it. Is loving one another too much for us, too good for us? But now two chapters later in chapter 15, Jesus takes that same principle and applies it in a very different way. 
He's not calling us here to love one another. He's calling us to experience Satan's hatred against us. That's the call now. In this case of experiencing Satan's fury was not beneath the king of kings. How can we, the slave of the king, expect anything less? Why would we expect any better treatment? Put it this way, if Jesus could not get along with this evil world system, why would we ever think that we could get along with it? That we could do better? Why would we ever think that we could be kind enough that the evil world system would accept us? Or winsome enough? Or charming enough? Or giving enough? Again, to win this evil world system favor and friendship. If the king couldn't do it, the slave can't do it. And so this is why, verse 20, Jesus continues, if they persecuted me, the king, the master, they will also, the promise, they will also persecute you. This is what we must expect. We will be treated by the world like Jesus was treated by the world. And just notice the progression here, the internal hatred promised in verses 18 and 19 now becomes external action. Jesus uses the word persecution. And the word persecute here, it's a graphic term. It carries with it the picture of being chased, chased by a wild beast, pursued, pursued with evil intent. which is exactly the word, same word, exactly the word John used to describe Jesus's life. John 5, 16, the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Same word. The Jews persecuted Jesus. And we see this play out. They pursue him, they hound him. His enemies corner him and question him. He's threatened by his adversaries. They even condemn him to death. Each external act of hate was an attempt to intimidate Jesus, silent him. That's always the point. Persecution is meant to silence the gospel. And again, the promise here, verse 20, because we are Christ's slave, because he is our master, Because this persecution was not beneath him, we must expect the same treatment from the world. D.A. Carson puts it this way. Those who preach Jesus's gospel and live in progressive conformity to his life and teaching will attract the same antagonism that he did. Let's just note that final phrase there we will attract the same antagonism that he did. That's our lot. That's our calling. Connect it with the story right before. In verse 16, Jesus says that he's appointed us to bear fruit. And we love that. We glory in that. Yes, Lord, I want to produce fruit for you. And now Jesus explains the context in which this fruit will blossom. It's not during the mild mornings of a spring day. 
It's under the dark clouds of a stormy night. So let's answer the question, a few questions. Unpacking verse 20 here. How was Jesus persecuted through the gospels? Answer that question. What antagonism did he face? How was he pursued? How did this evil world system try to intimidate him into silence? And then draw application. What does that mean for us? How does gospel hatred look for us? Right? We stand in solidarity with him. We stand for his gospel. Again, we can expect the same antagonism that he did. A slave is not greater than his master. So the many faces of gospel hatred. And what we find, we follow the gospels, follow Jesus' life, four satanic schemes, four satanic schemes this world tries to use in order to intimidate the believer to give up their faith, to remain silent for their Lord, and then to win their acceptance. Four satanic schemes. Let's look at the first one. We'll look at all four. Scheme number one, start here. The first scheme is this, personal insults. Personal insults. And admittedly, this pales in comparison to how we normally define persecution. This is where the world's gospel hatred often begins. And quite frankly, this is where we fail. We fail here. Now turn to John 8. We'll see this scheme take shape. John chapter 8 And Jesus is taking his stand against the religious leaders. John 8, verse 40, notice what he says here. You are doing the deeds of your father. He's confronting them. They know what father he's referring to. Look at verse 44. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. So Jesus is unmasking now their sin. He's exposing their true allegiance. They claim to be gods. They're actually Satan's. But notice here specifically what sparks their anger against Christ. What does he say? Verse 41, you are doing the deeds of your father. It is their deeds. It is their sin. The call to repentance The unmasking of sin always is the spark that sets the unbeliever's anger ablaze. Think of John 7, the world hates me. Why? Why, Jesus? Is it all the miracles you've done? It's because you fed them? You raised the dead? No, the world hates me because I testify of it. I expose it. Specifically, that its deeds are evil. The world will hate us when we call sin, sin. It will hate us and call sinners to repentance. It's always the spark. Think of what Jesus says back in John 3. This is the judgment. This is my pronouncement now upon you. That light, the light, has come into the world. This is the light of holiness. This is Christ himself. This is divine righteousness. It exposes the sinfulness of every heart. This is what the gospel does. It convicts the conscience. 
It's light that the sinner hates. Why? Because men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light. It's the common theme throughout the history of redemption. Lovers of sin hate conviction of sin. And that's what the gospel does. It presses the weight of guilt upon the sinful heart. It exposes sin. And it's guilt that the sinner does not want to feel. And thus, the sinner will do anything to get rid of that guilt as long as they do not give up their sin. And thus, Jesus says in verse 21, John 3, because of all of that, the world will try to intimidate you into silence. You don't want to feel this guilt, this conviction. Why? Verse 21, for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Keep the sin on the inside. Keep it hidden. Gospel hatred is actually based upon fear, fear of holiness, fear of righteousness. And thus, the world will insult you, if you proclaim the gospel, gospel, insult you personally, insult you to shut you up. Finish verse 41. Notice what they say to Jesus. They said to him, their deeds are exposed. They said to him, we, we here is emphatic, we as contrasted with you, Jesus, we were not born of fornication. We weren't born of fornication like you were. Just personal insult. They're trying to ease their guilt. How? By smearing Jesus' reputation. They're calling into question the legitimacy of Jesus' conception. They're trying to discredit his gospel by tarnishing his genealogy, by sullying his mother's reputation. This is just rude, right? Just rude. It's offensive. It's vulgar behavior. This is what the smutty tabloids try to do. Contention is this, Jesus' gospel is illegitimate because his birth was illegitimate. It's a satanic scheme Jesus actually warned about. Again, back to his first sermon, blessed are you, Jesus says, when people insult you. It's a scheme of Satan, when they insult you, when they mock you, when they abuse you with their words, when they call you foolish, when they question your sanity, and notice, falsely say all kinds of evil against you. They lie about you. They call into question your character behind your back. This is one of the schemes the early haters of Christianity used in the second century. Here's a quote from that time. Take a look at your gatherings, the scoffer says. What are they made up of? Mostly women, gullible children. The majority are from the working classes, not well-educated, mostly poor and even slaves. Some God, no wonder you're all regarded as fools. That's from the second century. It's childish name-calling. It's exactly, though, what we hear today. Christians are fools because we believe an ancient book. We're gullible buffoons because we've been duped into believing an incarnate God. 
But if we're honest, if we're honest with ourselves, we have to admit this does at times silence us. Again, we want to court the friendship with the world. Well, what's the answer to this satanic scheme? How do we remain faithful while our reputation is smeared and our intelligence is questioned? When Jesus tells us back in Matthew 5, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, here's the answer, here's the counter. Rejoice and be glad, why? For your reward in heaven is great. That's the counter. That's what we hold on to. We will stay faithful. We will remain bold when we are personally insulted, when we value heaven's reward, when we value that more than any worldly acceptance. We will stay faithful. We'll actually call people to repentance, to faith. When was the last time we've done that? We will do that when we care more about Jesus' words, well done, good and faithful servant, care more about those words than what maybe our neighbor has to say about us. That's the first scheme, the first way Jesus was persecuted, how we will be persecuted, will be personally insulted, personal insults. There's a second scheme we see in Jesus' life Persecution now gets heavier. And Jesus also faced public humiliation. Public humiliation. In Matthew 10, Jesus is called Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. He's called that in front of the people. In John 9, Jesus is called a sinner. We know that this man is a sinner, which meant he's a hypocrite. Claimed to be the sinless son of God. He's a sinner. He's a hypocrite. They're calling him a liar. He's unworthy to be believed in anything he has to say. It's all public now. In Luke 7, Jesus was called a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of the hated tax collectors and sinners. He even visited the prostitutes. In John 8... Jesus is called a Samaritan. He's a half-breed, hated even more than the Gentiles in that Jewish culture. Publicly, they say, do we not rightly say you are a Samaritan? It's a term of abuse. Again, a heretic, a sellout, an apostate. On multiple occasions, Jesus was even accused of being demon-possessed. The crowd said, you have a demon Religious leaders, you have a demon. Whatever you've been called, it's not that bad, is it? Compared to that? You just see the evil world system is desperate to discredit Jesus and desperate to humiliate his followers. Why? Because the message of Christ cannot be countered. The gospel cannot be argued against. And thus the attacks must turn personal. 
And when private insults do not silence the believer, public humiliation is next. The slandering of someone's name publicly, the libel of someone lying, maligning, mocking. Think of the Psalms. They lie against me. The mocking, perhaps, with other neighbors without you knowing maybe turning friends against you, falsely accusing you in the workplace maybe of something. Whatever it takes to ease their conscience and suppress their guilt. Now, it happened to Jesus. It happened to the early church. In the 60s, Nero publicly accused the Christians of setting the fire that burned Rome. So Nero probably started the fire, but Nero now publicly accuses the Christians, why? To turn the town's derision against them, to make his persecution of them acceptable in the public's eyes. It was all public humiliation. As Christianity spread, Christians were publicly accused of being cannibals, cannibals. That's not popular in people's eyes. Right, one second century document records it this way. You Christians are the worst breed ever to affect the world. You deserve every punishment you can get. It would be better if you and your Jesus had never been born. We hear that you are all cannibals. You eat the flesh of your children in your sacred meetings. Early Christians were publicly accused of sexual immorality, of incest, hosting sexual orgies behind closed doors. When I was reading some of that, I was reminded about 10 years ago, this is similar to what actually happened to me. (laughs) I wrote an article back in Massachusetts, wrote an article for our town newspaper, explained the gospel, called on believers to repentance. It wasn't the first time I did this. That was probably my sixth or seventh article that I wrote for the paper and with 20, within 24 hours, the comment section and the online version, the comment section was full. It was slander. It was humiliation. Uh, some were warning parents not to bring their children to church because I was a pedophile. That uh, made the comment section. Uh, I was accused of being a closet homosexual. I was called a white supremacist. Don't know how that goes together, but... Still, as a white supremacist, I was compared to Osama bin Laden, compared to Hitler. And those are just the comments I can say in public. In fact, the vitriol was so severe, we actually had to inform the police of what was going on. And there was even a police car there next to the church that next Sunday. Because, why? Because there was a 1,300-word article in the newspaper calling people to repentance. Can bring it back to church history. The early Christians were called traitors of the land. Why? Because they refused to worship the emperor. They were a traitor. They were accused of plotting to overthrow the government. Why? Because they talked about a kingdom coming, the kingdom of God. In fact, Christians were even accused of causing natural disasters, the earthquakes and the famines. Why? Because they didn't pray to those gods. All of it, though, with the goal of silencing the gospel through public humiliation. 
in order to turn the people against the Christians. J.C. Ryle put it this way. Nicknames, insulting epithets, violent language are favorite weapons with the devil. When other means of carrying on his warfare fail, he stirs up his servants to smite with the tongue. Grievous indeed are the sufferings which the saints of God have had to endure from the tongue in every age. Their characters have been slandered. Evil reports have been circulated about them. Lying stories have been diligently invented and greedily swallowed about their conduct. The true Christian in the present day must never be surprised to find that he has constant trials to endure from this quarter. By the way, that was in the 1800s. Now we have the internet, right? Human nature never changes so long as he serves the world and walks in the broad way. Little, perhaps, will be said against him. And please just think about that. Little will be said about you when you court the world, when you don't call people to repentance, when you don't proclaim that gospel. Once, though, let him take up the cross and follow Christ. And there is no lie too monstrous and no story too absurd for some to tell against him and for others to believe. And then Ryle draws out the application. What's the counter to that? But let him take comfort in the thought that he is only drinking the cup which his blessed master drank before him. The lies of his enemies do him no injury in heaven, whatever they may on earth. Let him bear them patiently and not fret or lose his temper. How key is that? Don't lose the temper. Do good to those who insult you. Christ is the example, Ryle says. When Christ was reviled, he reviled not again. Why? This is what Peter says. Because Jesus kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. He cared more about what the Father said about him. Ryle says, let the Christians do likewise. The principle is this. When we are satisfied with our consciences being clear before God, we will not be swayed by the public humiliation we might face. We are right in God's eyes. Third scheme third scheme in the life of Jesus. We see it today. Scheme number three, blatant intimidation. Blatant intimidation. Saw this back in John chapter nine. Uh, the parents of the blind man who was healed, they refused to tell the Pharisees that Jesus had healed their son. Why? Here's why. Because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be the Christ, he is to be put out of synagogue, removed from the culture, from society. So what we see in John 16, Jesus is leading there. John 16, verse two, and Jesus warns, they will make you outcasts from the synagogue. You'll lose everything. This builds, 
Intimidation of this kind, blatant, was not limited to synagogue excommunication. In the book of Acts, Christians were in prison. John, Peter, Paul, Timothy, Aristarchus, Epaphras, they're all in prison. In Hebrews 10, we read of believers' homes being confiscated. Hebrews chapter 10. Listen to what the writer says. Remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. And what were these sufferings? Verse 33, partly being made a public spectacle. This is public shame and humiliation. Public shame through reproaches, insults, mockeries, lies, and tribulations, pressures to give up the faith. Why? What riled the world? Here's here's what did. Verse 34, for you showed sympathy to the prisoners. You did not disown your brother or sister in Christ when they were thrown into prison because of the faith. You held firm to the gospel. You showed compassion to them. You weren't silenced by this intimidation. You fulfilled John 15. You loved one another. And because you did not shrink back in your commitment to your fellow believers, this is what Hebrews 10 says, you experience your own problems. What are those problems? The seizure of your property. The seizure of your property. And the word seizure there, it refers to either the government formerly, formally confiscating these Christians' homes or a mob informally plundering them, either or. Either way, blatant intimidation. Give up your faith, we'll restore everything. Intimidation to choose their homes and land over Christ. And when you follow, again, this early church history, you see in the book of James that the Christians could not turn to the courts. They had no legal standing. The courts were against them. Well, can we draw application for today? Unbelievers calling for the community, the mob, to cancel businesses owned by Christians who are outspoken about the gospel? That's the modern day plundering. Believing business owners who are sued, taken to court because of stances they've taken on gender issues, homosexuality, mobs, protesting righteousness, trying to intimidate by sheer numbers and maybe loudness. You can see the parallel. And so what's the answer? What's the answer to this scheme? How do we remain faithful against blatant gospel intimidation Well, it's the same way the early Christians faced it and endured. Continue Hebrews 10. You remained faithful even when your property was seized. You remained faithful. In fact, even more than remaining faithful and enduring, you even accepted it joyfully. They knew Jesus' command. 
Count it all joy. You accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. How? How? Knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. That's the counter. We will not be intimidated into silence by blatant intimidation only to the extent that we value our eternal home in heaven more than our temporal possessions here. We will not be intimidated only when we hold our earthly possessions loosely because then and only then can we cling tightly to the gospel and not let it go. Well, it leads into a fourth scheme. I'm just gonna mention it here. Scheme number four. Physical pain, physical death. We went through this last week in some detail. But think of Jesus, think of Jesus. The crowd literally tries to throw him off of a cliff in his hometown. Eight times in John's gospel we read, the Jews were seeking to kill him. Down at chapter 16, verse two. An hour is coming, Jesus says, for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. I'm going to be killed and you're going to be killed. All of these are powerful schemes real threats, satanic in their source. This is inner hatred from the evil world system that spills over into now actions. It's the same counter though. How do we, we remain faithful? Same counter, what does Jesus, what does Hebrews say? For the joy set before him, he endured this. For the joy set before him. Again, how do we remain faithful, endure? Is that possible? Well, listen to 1 John 4. And what we're promised, you are from God, little children. You've been born again by God. You've been given his spirit. You've been promised his eternal protection. And this, we have overcome the world. Why? Because greater is he who is in you than he was in the world. And we are going to see that drop down to verse 26, when the helper comes, who I will send to you from the Father. We're not in this alone. We have the Spirit within us, sealing us, indwelling us, and thus we can overcome and prevail through each and every one of these schemes and remain faithful to our Lord. Father, you have shown us very clearly that the life of your son was not easy. And when the light came, the darkness tried to extinguish it, but it could not. And thus we are thankful. You have called us to be faithful to you Lord, I pray that as we search our own hearts now, 
as we prepare for the Lord's table. That you would grant us forgiveness where we fail you or we grow silent because of these satanic schemes. Where we have not been vocal about the gospel. We've explained our silence away. But when it comes down to it, it's because of fear. We have been intimidated. Forgive us for that. Grant us repentance to turn from that sin and that in a love for you and your glory, indeed, we would be those ambassadors that speak of Christ. Pray this in his name, amen.